Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello, family. How's it going? I got a nice two-week break, if you're wondering, uh, and it was very great. Uh, raise your hand if you've been to the Ohio legendary Old Man's Cave. Raise your hand if you've been. Okay, most of you. If you haven't, what are you doing here? Um, it's the best. It's, uh, it's amazing. And uh, I got to go on a little trip. I call it a trip, not a vacation, because our daughter came with us, so there's a difference. Um, I love her, but it changes things. Um, and uh, we got to stay in Logan for a few days, and uh, I got to so- see Old Man's Cave. Now, uh, Old Man's Cave in itself is amazing, but it's also amazing that it's 20 yards from a parking lot. So for those of you who don't like love hiking or feel like you can take the photo that looked like you hiked, that is the place for you. You go down a few stairs, and uh, I, c- I held Junior the whole time, so that was great, because uh, that was probably not the greatest place to take a toddler, but um, she loved it. So there's a photo of her... Uh, um, throwing rocks. So, yeah, she was pretty pumped about that. Um, I'm just trying to win points with you. That There's no reason for that photo, but <laughs> like, oh, look at that. He has a cute daughter. Um, I, I bring up the story because I, I actually went there about five or six weeks ago. I was at our network retreat. For those of you who don't know, we're a part of a small, life-changing church planning network uh, with us, Movement Church, Three Creeks Church. And uh, the three of us are all church planters. Mark and Joel, the other two, are also our elders currently until we install our own in the next several years. And uh, we went on a retreat. We're just kind of strategizing and trying to figure out how to fill the cabin with more pastors and planters. And uh, we went to Old Man's Cave with our wives to take a really great photo. I actually forgot to put up a photo, but uh, we did the same thing. We walked, walked down the stairs, right, take the photo. Uh, and it was funny. When we were walking back up, I was thinking about this question. And I don't know if you like guys like outdoorsy, like, nature, parks, whatever. Every time I go to like a national park, I've been to Zion, Antelope Canyon, Horseshoe Bend, all these places, all I think is, man, I just want this land for myself and I want to put a little, uh, you know, the shipping containers? I just want to put a little shipping container right there, right, with like a glass window and just call it mine. It'd be amazing. Anybody ever dream that? Like all these people ruin this place, you know what I mean? And I remember going to Zion National Park, and like I'm like staring at a waterfall. Or no, no, sorry, Horseshoe Bend. If you've seen Horseshoe Bend, it's this beautiful um, deep canyon where there's like this beautiful river bend. You've probably seen photos of it. And you can go up right to the edge. In fact, people fall and die every year on it because they don't have any fence or guardrails. And I'm sitting there like looking over, you know, several hundred feet. Somebody literally puts their camera lens on my shoulder. And I'm like sitting on the edge, and I look back. And I'm like, this is how it ends. Like, this is how it ends right here. Someone's like snapping a photo and like, you know, bumps me off the edge. And I just have this thought, I'm like, this would be so much better if it was just all mine. <laughs> like, can I, uh, have you guys ever heard of, this is like a really, this is a parent um, story. Has anybody heard of Blippi? Yeah. Blippi's this really obnoxious character who just does things uh, and kids watch him do it. And he goes to like, like kids museums and like all this type of fun stuff. What I'm always jealous about is he goes to all these places and they're definitely like letting him be there by himself most times. Like they'll rent out the place for him. He'll come at like a weird time. And I'm always like, that's what I want. I want to go to a national park and be the only one there. Now that's impossible. 
But when we were at Old Man's Cave, I was thinking, man, how cool would it be if I had, like, my family several hundred years ago had, like, discovered Old Man's Cave and put, for some reason, a shipping container right on the cliff right there and just overlooked the waterfall, and it was our land. How cool would that be? I was walking with Mark and Joel, and I said, it made me think of this question. I said, uh, I said, guys, would you rather, like, own this land for yourself and be able to put your own cabin or whatever on it, or would you rather give it away or even sell it to share with everyone else? And Mark just instantly said, oh, I would put a cabin on this so fast. <laughs> and it, it just started getting me to think about, and what we're going to talk about today is this idea of treasure, things that we, we deeply value, and uh, the reference of that to the kingdom that we've talked about for several weeks through Matthew. But thinking about the idea of, like, like my, my immediate thought with these beautiful places that God has created is I want them for myself. Like, I want to be able to control them, or I want the environment to be what I want to be. I want to be tranquil with no one around, or no camera lenses on my shoulder, or no, like, landmarks or whatever. I get to design it how I want it. And I, I think it's so indicative of, you know, we've been talking about the, the, the contrasting difference between our kingdom and, and Jesus' kingdom, and how they're very different. And our kingdom is almost always rooted in selfishness. Or it's, it doesn't look like selfishness, but it has a deeper layer of selfishness. And, and I bring up that story because today we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven in such a way that it's like a treasure. And when we think about treasure in our own lives, like, what is our inclination? In that moment, my inclination was like, I want this for myself. And I want to be able to be in control of it. I want to be able to figure out who can go see it and who can't. When I can see it on my own, what it'll look like. And for us, I think we're not that far off in a lot of ways of wanting control of own, the own areas of our lives. So if you turn to Matthew 13, uh, Sarah just read a portion of that, but Matthew 13. Uh, what's unique about this is, is in the book of Matthew, I'm going to turn there with you. In the book of Matthew, you have, it's centered on five primary teachings that Jesus writes. And, and the, uh, the author Matthew is doing this on purpose because what he's doing is he's reading this essentially to first century Jewish people who are trying to figure out, is Jesus really real? Like, is, is this really the Messiah? And so he centers it based upon what they would know as the Torah, the first five books of, of what they would have memorized as Jewish people. And, and so this is essentially the uh, part four of Matthew, but the whole portion is centered around opinions of who Jesus is. That's what we call it, opinions of the king. And uh, people are saying literally everything you can think of about him. Uh, I wrote down a whole list of like what I've gathered over the last several chapters. Some people think he's the Messiah. Like They're like, oh, I think he could be. Some people want to rally troops because they think he's going to lead them in a physical battle against Rome, right? Some people think he will conjure up angels to destroy their oppressive rulers. Some people think he's just going to do away with the law, and it'll be like a Las Vegas. Everybody can be free to do whatever they want, no rules. Some people think he isn't real, and if he was, he would be more charismatic, more bold, more of like a military kind of focus leader. Some people think he is the Messiah because he's changing things far too much. He's, he's implementing things that are, seem counterintuitive to what the Messiah would have came along for. Some people don't think he's the Messiah because they're insecure themselves. They don't want to think about what could possibly happen if this was to be true because it would uh, not reconcile with their current weight of life. You have all these opinions of Jesus, and it's funny because, you know, he's just dealing with this cannon fodder of wrong opinions. And it's funny to think about uh, separating the kingdom of Jesus from Jesus. You really can't do it. Like, they are one in another. When you experience the kingdom of heaven, it is experiencing the reality of Jesus in your life. And so if we have a very misconceived notion of who Jesus is, or we have all these agendas we want to try to force down his throat, the kingdom itself becomes skewed. 
And I think when we, we think about the kingdom in that, in that way, we realize that a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are not all that excited about the kingdom. Some of us have been raised in it, and we're like, well, this is what I know, so like, I am going to keep trudging along and showing up on Sundays and being kind of obedient, even though I don't like it. For many of us, there's been questions that like, we feel like we're brushed under the rug or maybe not acknowledged, and so we're like choosing to live in the kingdom, but there's parts of it that we don't like. We're like, well, I don't know how this reconciles, but it'll be fine. I just won't go over there, right? I, I'll just stay in my area. And at the end of the day, the kingdom, as we define it simply, is God's rule where he wants it. And the kingdom is not only this lofty, eternal place, like a couple thousand feet up in the sky, like we, we think about, right? But it is the kingdom here and now through the Spirit's power in our lives. So the cool thing about the kingdom is when we, do, when we choose to become citizens of it, that it becomes real now. And many of us don't live like that's true. Many of us are like, yeah, yeah, like, get a jail free card, heaven, great. But what Jesus is going to do here is he's taken all the opinions of people and what they've had. He has essentially sliced all of them. And now he's going to reveal to them what the beauty of the kingdom truly should look like in our hearts. And so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the main idea, the main theme right now before we start reading, because I want it to just ruminate in your brains as we read this. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the prerequisite for understanding Jesus' parables, his little stories, is hunger. Like, it is a hunger and a thirst. Jesus says in his first teaching in Matthew, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the the kingdom is theirs. It'll be given to them. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so when we hunger for the reality of the parable, that is the prerequisite for understanding it. And so these parables that we're going to talk about, I'm going to give it away right here. They're about a joyful, that's an important word, joyful, wholehearted commitment to Jesus and his kingdom. The kingdom in these next three parables, there is no lukewarm. You're either in or you're out. It takes all of you or none of you. There is no 90%. There's no rounding up. It's 100 or nothing. And what that means is that it requires a costly renunciation of the world and its perspective on our lives. So we have... This, this kingdom that is, is really joyful and wholehearted, but it comes at a cost. It, always, it should. Anything worth value comes at a cost. So Matthew 13, verse 44, there's three parables. I'm going to read them. We're going to go through kind of each one separate. First one, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a person found and hid. Then because of joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Now, uh, I don't know if you think, anybody think of the movie Holes? No, maybe not. I was trying to recall the movie. It's just been so long. I'm like, what was his name? Was his name Barfag? What was Shia LaBeouf's character's nickname? No, but what was his, like, they all had nicknames, like Zero and... Caveman. Was it Caveman? Barfag was another character, right? Okay, I'm not just making that up. And you have these guys who are digging holes. Spoiler alert, it's been out for decades, right? But they're trying to dig for treasure. They find it. It's great, right? But it made me think of that because, you know, we read this and we're like, oh, like, what a weird thing. Like, who just goes out and is like, I'm going to go out in Hilliard and just, like, start digging for some treasure in some cornfield and hope I find something. It was actually surprisingly common in this era. You didn't have Chase Bank with the FDIC insuring your money. So you put it in the ground. Like, that was your best solution. So weirdly enough, there was a lot of treasure in the ground. And uh, if, if you think about, like, if someone came and, and, and seized your village or ransacked you or whatever, I mean, they don't have enough time to be like, oh, we're going to go dig holes all around your village, so you'd, you typically bury it in there. Now, if you died, people might not know where it is. So 
the odds of this is actually far more likely than you think. But what, what we have to, there's a couple important things that Jesus is doing here. These stories, in fact, pack an incredible punch, and they're creating a definition list for the kingdom in these three instances. The first one is the kingdom is a treasure. Pretty easy, right? It's a treasure. Now, I don't know about you, but if you, have, if you find a treasure, it means it's worth value. Okay, a treasure would not be something that's worthless or meaningless or not provide value to, this, to the finder or the seer, right? It's like when you watch Storage Wars, if you ever watch that show, they go in there and they, they, they'll be like, oh, you know, I can sell this for two grand, I can sell this for three grand. I'm like, yeah, it's only if someone's willing to buy it, though, right? Like, I don't know how many people are going to buy an old, rusty Exxon sign for $2,000, you know, maybe, but it's only worth, right, what the person perceives the value to be. So a treasure is something that we perceive a deep value for. The second piece in this, in this parable is that it says it was hidden. And this is unique because you would think, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Like, Jesus is not trying to hide his kingdom. That wouldn't make any sense. Why, if he's here for all, why would he hide the kingdom? Like, it doesn't seem to make any sense, right? It should be out in the open. In fact, the treasure should be sitting on the grass, and it should have arrows pointing towards it. And, and like, you know, all this obvious signs, why would you have to dig for it? And if we remember the parables, and the prerequisite is hunger, the only thing that would allow that to be the reality of finding it is if it was hidden. Remember, Jesus here is, is, is almost doing this with his kingdom. Why is he doing that? Because he wants you to come because his burden is not heavy. But he wants you to understand the reality of what you're experiencing will change your life and require all of you. If you're not willing to go digging for it, you're not willing to actually assume the responsibility of the treasure. So it's like, you don't just, like, like I don't know if you've ever... Um, um, like heard about this model where when you give something away for free, you should never get away for free. You should have them build ownership into it. We used to build homes in Mexico at my last church in Tucson, and we would uh, we build these homes for people, and you know they weren't anything spectacular, but um, they were they were really awesome and helpful for them. And and everybody that got a home never got it for free. They had to work several hundred community service hours. They had to learn a craft. They had to start a business. They had to help build other people's homes. And it was the coolest model I've ever seen because there was no free handouts. Now, you best believe that whenever they got that house, it felt way, great, uh, way greater because they had worked, they had earned, they had provided ownership over that thing. If you've ever heard of Financial Peace University, it's a, a Christian uh, program that helps people get out of debt, which is a great program. Like, they do not give that program away for free. You have to pay the 90 or $100. Like, you have to. And people laugh because they're like, well, the people going into that class don't have any money. They're in debt. And they're like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. If you pay for it, you will have more ownership in, in the reality of it. If it's just given to you, 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 don't, you can't necessarily assume as much responsibility. The hidden treasure here would require you to have a hunger to find it. So this person has to find it. That's the third one. It must be found, meaning it's not just going to be given to you. Jesus is going to be the most compelling person that we read about in history, but he's not shoving anything down your throat. He's not. In fact, most of the times he rebuts with the, with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're coming at him. He doesn't just walk in there and be like, y'all are crazy and just start going off on them. They're always attacking him and he's putting them in their place. He's not going to shove anything down your throat. The kingdom is not won by coercion. Now the next part is fascinating, okay? This random nine-to-five worker in a field is some, for some reason digging up holes, looking for treasure, I don't know. He finds the treasure, what does he do? He buries it, right? He buries it, and he's like, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get this treasure, right? He doesn't tell the owner. He doesn't tell anyone. So what does he do? Because of joy, that's important. Because of joy, it's rooted and motivated in joy and delight. He went out, sold all that he had, and he bought the field. 
the kingdom, when realized, is pure joy. Think about that. Like, I think that is the greatest barometer for you right now in kingdom living. If you follow Jesus, am I experiencing any bit of joy in the kingdom? Because if you aren't, I think maybe you're missing the kingdom. Is the kingdom truly rooted in joy? Now, now I'm not saying hardship, because the two can actually be synonymous. Happiness and hardship, not so much. Hard to be happy when things are hard. Joy and hardship, very much synonymous with one another at the same time. You can have both of those in some ways working together at the same time. So just because your life's hard doesn't mean, ah, I'm not seeing any joy in the kingdom. It's like, no, no, are you looking in the right ways? So, so it must be rooted and motivated in joy and delight, which, to be honest, what, what, a, uh, what a difference in the American church. Sometimes I feel like we, it's rooted more in guilt and shame than joy and delight. Like, oh, i got to go do this thing. Oh, i got to show up to this thing, or people are going to be mad at me, or they're going to judge me, or like, oh, I have to perform in such a capacity, or, you know, God's not going to love me, or not love me as much, or not going to bless me. Like, like we, we, even though we might even know those things aren't right, we still, like, live our lives as we start to, like, kind of lean into them. Like, we're not saying, yeah, oh, yeah, I believe that, like, if I, if I don't show up to this thing, nothing will happen to me. God won't love me any less. But then you don't go, and then you feel really guilty. You feel terrible about yourself. You feel beat up. You feel insecure. And so though you might believe the right thing, you still get caught in this must be rooted in joy and delight. And the last piece of this is what? He sells all that he has and he buys the field with the treasure in it. He leverages everything he has to buy the field to receive the treasure. He, he literally, everything. Now, I'm sure you've thought about this question, like, if you're, if you're trying to reconcile, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You're like, am I willing to give up everything? And I think about, like, um, I was a student pastor. We'd go to these camps in the summer, and they'd have this, like, big, powerful experience. We'd call it cry night, right? And everybody weeps, and kids just, like, come to Jesus at 1130 at night, you know, sleep-deprived and all that. And, and they're going forth to do this thing, right? There's always this physical thing you need to do. Follow. Does that make sense? Like, raise your hand, push this button, throw a rock in the fire, whatever, right? Like, there's this thing. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, there's this thing. Um, and, and the reason why they do it is because they want people to feel like I, I physically, like, like, the word believe, remember, is pistis in the Greek. It means to, like, to set forth, like, an action. It's a verb. It's not just a, a noun in your head. To do this thing. But, but I think about so many times, I think about it in my own life, like when I truly surrendered to Jesus, like I had no idea what I was getting into. Like I just didn't. I knew that this area of my life was wrong. It was sinful. It was hurting not only myself, it was hurting others. It was against the image of God, the Imago Dei, what he had created to be. And I knew that I couldn't get rid of it myself. And I knew that I wanted a savior who could remove that. But whenever I chose Jesus for that area of my life, I had no idea that all this other stuff would have to be reconciled, right? Like, oh, this, this addiction or this insecurity or, or, or these boundaries I need to set in my relationship or, or, or like the money that I receive, I have to like be generous now. Like all these type of things, I follow Jesus for this and now I, oh, God, I got to fit all that over here somehow, right? Anybody tracking with that? Does that make sense? Like, and, and, and then what happens is you, you almost face another precipice where you're like, okay, I'm following Jesus. Ooh, but that like, I don't want to keep that the way it is, right? I want to lock that door and just leave it. But Jesus is saying, no, no, like, it's all of you. And I think that when we read the, these, these uh, three parables, they have this stark everything, right? They give up everything. They sell everything. And you're like, that seems a little drastic. I don't, I don't know if my life would, ever, would require that of me. 
But the thing is, if you're not willing to have that conversation, then you're withholding a large part of your heart from Jesus. And what happens is, you're still living in both kingdoms, you're sitting on a fence, and sitting on a fence is incredibly uncomfortable. Logically, like it is. Jesus is saying here, I promise you there'll be far more freedom if you just jump the whole way over. Like, if you're trying to have both, you just can't. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. It will not work. And, and so all of these instances is it has to be our number one priority. Now, so this is the character of a guy, like I said, 9 to 5, average Joe, right? Let's go to the next guy in verse 45. This guy's a little bit different. It says, the kingdom of heaven, again, is like a merchant. We've got a different, different role here. Merchant searching for fine pearls. When he found a pearl of great value, he went out and he sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom is what? A treasure, a pearl. In fact, pearls back then, they couldn't really, now you can fabricate fake pearls. They're pretty hard to tell the difference. Back then, they didn't have that. A pearl was a pearl. It was legit. And this guy was a professional in searching for fine pearls. So the kingdom, once again, in this parable is a treasure. It's something that has immense value to the holder too. It's somewhat hidden, right? He's, it says searching. He's searching for fine pearls. He he's, has to find it. The third thing must be found. The fourth thing, it doesn't say that he does this out of joy, but it says when he found a pearl of great value, he went out and sold everything he had. I think he was pretty excited about that pearl. And then the last thing, again, it becomes our number one priority. Now, what's interesting about the merchant as opposed to the average worker in the field is I love the merchant because, remember, when Jesus is telling the same thing multiple times, he's doing it for a reason. It's like firing a shotgun, and he's like, well, one bullet might hit here, but I want to show you the reality of the scatter of what this means. And so saying, hey, if you're working in a field, this is relatable. But now he's actually pulling on the person who I would consider the spiritual buffet person, the person who is well-versed well, well, uh, in the fine pearl world, meaning like the spiritual realm, right? They're like a spiritual person. They, they want to be a better person. They, they maybe pursue the, the Dalai Lama or, or mindfulness, right? Or like they have Catholic roots, but they're more like Christian in this way, or they go to the big church, but they're not in community, but they also like love horoscope, right? They have like, they just like just blend of like just a little bit of everything, right? They're this, this fine pearl merchant. And what they're doing is their heart is desiring this ultimate thing that will satisfy them. This buffet is only feeding their own God because it's allowing them to define the boundaries of what's right, what's wrong, what's truth, what's not, what's accountability, what's not, right? And at the end of the day, this merchant who was, he, I mean, he had to be an expert, right? You get, I don't know about you. If you put 100 pearls in front of me, I could not tell you the difference. Like, they're all shiny and they're white balls. I don't know, like... But he could like pull them up and he could inspect them in the light and he could find the greatest pearl, which to me blows my mind. Uh, it reminds me of, you're going to hate when I say this, but there's a VeggieTales episode where King Larry has all these ducks. It's a play on Bathsheba. He has all these women in the Bible and he wants this woman. In the VeggieTales, he wants this duck. And he gets the woman the duck. I'm trying to blend them together. And, and, and in the VeggieTales, it's, it's profound. They take the duck they put it on his shelf with his hundreds of other ducks, and they all look exactly the same, like your classic yellow rubber duck, all exactly the same. And you're like, what in the world? Like, they're all the same. How can you tell a difference? This man, though he had accumulated pearls, though he had attempted this spiritual buffet, saw a pearl and immediately knew this is the one. 
And what does he do with all the other pearls? Gone. Sells everything he has, and he grabs that pearl. And probably just, I mean, it's funny, like, he probably can't even have a trophy case for the pearl because he sold his house and everything he had for the pearl. So he's this guy walking around the street just staring at his little pearl in his hand, right? Like, he can't put it in his trophy room. He sold his house, you know? He sold all his stuff. And so this, this second kind of reiteration of the kingdom grabs another audience. It grabs the people who are maybe Jewish, who were Gentile but practiced maybe witchcraft. or who were a bit, I remember uh, I've told you that there was a big kind of humanism movement, right? What feels good? What's pleasure? I will pursue that, right? I don't really... Like, it's no different than a lot of Americans today pursuing humanism. Whatever makes the world better, but also I want my pleasure and whatever. And all of these people are hearing this, and they're like, oh my gosh, wait, like, I'm pursuing all of these things. I, I feel like I'm, I'm not necessarily, like, finding that true reality in my life that changes my life. And, and I, I think Jesus is drawing, like I said, a wider net here. In, in comparison to the first one, the occupation is not really relevant. He's just this normal guy. This guy sells everything, including his other pearls, to get it. In fact, um, sometimes people like say, well, like from the outside, will say, well, like Christians aren't very well educated. Like they, they just, they, they blindly follow, right? Like they don't, they don't really know the Bible. If they really knew it, if they really studied it, they'd find all the errors and problems and all this, right? And I think this is an interesting parable because this, this pearl like merchant, was probably knew more about pearls than anyone else. Like, he was an expert in his field. And at the end of the day, that pearl had no comparison to everything else. And so I say this with, as Christians, like, I, I think truly that those who are seeking, regardless of how much they know or don't know, like, when you truly dig into seeing Jesus for who he truly is, it is the most compelling pearl that you can find. And we're taking a long time to get through Matthew. But at the end of it, I hope... I hope that you're able to see this, this vignette of this person who is like no one else on earth, who lived a life that made literally no sense to our current life because it was so counterintuitive to the way the world worked, that you see this man who was not in a hurry, who could be interrupted on a whim, who would heal people who had no intrinsic value to society, who was just so secure that it was almost frustrating. He would do things that people thought he shouldn't do because he wasn't insecure. He wouldn't play the game. This man is this pearl of great value, and his kingdom is exactly, like I said, you can't separate the two. His kingdom is him alive in, in the domain that he is in. And so at the end of the day, a couple weeks ago, I said the prerequisite for parables is hunger, right? Like having this, this tension and this angst in you that you just, can't, you just can't get it off you. I don't know if you've ever like had this. I get this when I watch a really good movie. And I go to bed after, and like, I can't go to sleep. I'm just like analyzing the whole movie. I'm like reflecting on it. And the film MC has been great, because we can talk about the movie after, and it's great. Um, but it, it's just like, I have this hunger to like want to absorb the more weight of the story. Because if I can reflect on these moments, it creates a greater weight in, in the resolution, the climax of, of the movie. In the same way, I, I just think about these, these, these parables. And, and are you asking yourself, like, am I truly hungry for this? Am I truly hungry? The best, the best example I have of this is, um, is Sarah and I. When I met Sarah, we met through Instagram. It's a crazy story. Uh, through a mutual friend. I was a youth pastor at a time, living on a youth pastor budget. And we were dating long distance. She was in Austin. I was in Tucson. And so I have two words for you. Frontier Airlines. That was the key. To, that was the ticket, if you will, to, to meeting. And it was the worst, because I worked on Sundays. My day off was Friday, Saturday. 
And I would literally fly out, like Thursday night, I get back like Saturday super late, wake up 6 a.m., be at church at 7 the next day, and just be a shell of a human in front of everyone. And, um, and I just remember, though, those moments of us spending hours on, online at night, like talking. And I mean, I was just obsessed with Sarah. Like, <laughs> and, and I mean, my day was just constantly thinking about her and how I could be with her and how I could pinch pennies, how I could get there. I remember there was one trip where, you know, I get there and we're there. I'm not only there for usually like 40 hours. So I'm like maximizing these hours. You know, we're talking like little sleep, which is just terrible decisions as an adult now. But you're in love, you know. And I, I was on the way to meet her in Denver. I was going to ask her to be my official girlfriend. It was like val- close to Valentine's Day. And uh, my flight was in Phoenix because it was cheaper frontier. So I drove two hours to Phoenix, par- cheap parking lot. You know how it goes. I get on the plane at like 6.30. We're backing up. It had been delayed. We're backing up. All of a sudden, a southwest plane is taxiing, and it just runs over the corner of our wing, just mangles it. There's a photo up here of this wing. I'm sitting there, and my first thought is, my gosh, I'm not going to get to see Sarah. That was all I cared about. And everyone else is like, we're going to die. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not that bad. Like, it does make you wonder, like, are these really, that's like, planes are not that strong. Like, they're all like fiberglass or whatever. So I'm sitting by the window. This is actually my photo that someone took. I, I, I took a photo because I was sitting at the window, and they put on the news, and they got credit. I'm still jealous, salty to this day. I need to pray for forgiveness. But I took this photo, and, I, and, and they're like, hey, um, so we were literally 10 feet from, like, the, the gate, like, to get on. And they're like, hey, we can't move the plane. Apparently, the fuel, like, um, valve or plug is on that side of the wing. So if we move, you know, it could blow up. And they didn't say it like that, but, you know, I mean, they're like, we got to be precautious. So we sit in the plane for an hour and a half. And then we finally, what happens is they finally decide, you know, we're not going to move the plane, which made sense at the beginning. So I get, but they put up, bring up stairs and we get off the plane. I felt like I was like famous in LA on my own private plane, like walking on the term, the termac, like, and then we like walk and get back up. And then this is frontier style, you know, not planning on this. They're like, hey, you know, you're, we have a new flight. It'll be in an hour. So then it's 11 PM at this time. And then uh, at this point, we're starting to lose people. It's like this game show to see who's dumb enough to stay here long enough. And I'm very desperate. Like I want to see my future girlfriend, right? So, and I'm already in Phoenix, and I already paid the $48 to fly, so I'm, I'm in, you know? And I'm like, no turning back now, it'll be a waste of gas money. So, it, this weird, it's like a movie, this weird bonding moment, there's about five of us, we just start cracking jokes about Frontier, we just bond through making fun of Frontier. And we start hanging out, and then, you know, we're sitting in this terminal, and there's about 100, you know, probably 120 people on the flight, there's 100 people sitting in the terminal, some people are like, I'm out, I'm tra- traumatized, this plane, whatever. Uh, they give us they give about 10 minutes before we're about to line up. They say, hey, we got to move terminals, switch planes. So whole other side of the airport. So we all, the six of us, like, ha this is fun. We'll, like, go get some nachos, and we'll, like, talk and share our lives. And we did this, and then we get there an hour and a half later. It's now, like, close to one, and restaurants are closing. And then uh, they're like, hey, like, we don't know, like, when we have another plane. It's the middle of the night. There's not a lot of flights. Um, but we're going to buy you guys pizza. So, <laughs> so it's, like, 1.30, 1.30 a.m., uh, we're done eating our nachos, and there's six of us now have dwindled down to about 40 people. A lot of people are getting hotels, and I'm like, I, I can't afford a hotel. That's double the price of my flight. So I'm like, I'm sleeping in the airport. So the six of us are hanging out. They come with pizzas at 2 a.m., which I don't know what pizza shop was open at 2 a.m., but they bring like 60 pizzas because they're expecting the whole flight to want pizza. I mean, I kid you not, it was, an, it was a wheel cart of just pizzas, and there was like, there was at this point 30 of us. And so we ate pizza at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. rolls around. Once again, the flight that we thought we were going to get on wasn't real. We leave at like 4.30. At this point, there's like 15 people on the flight. 
at that point, I think we were like, we're going to stick it out. You know? I get there at like 6 a.m. I didn't sleep at all. And uh, Sarah picks me up. She didn't sleep because she was, tr- she was expecting to pick me up like, later that night. So you know, we both go, and we're out of, staying at a friend's house. We like, take a nap, and then we like, hang out all day until like, super late, hang with friends. And I sleep like an hour, a couple hours that next night. And then I fly home the next night. I get, I get, there, I get home at like, 2 or 3 a.m. because it's a two-hour drive from Phoenix. And then I wake up three hours later in student ministry. Let's go, right? <laughs> what was I doing? Think about how dumb I was. Like, but it doesn't matter. There's a hunger that just I could not, like, tame. I just couldn't. I was senseless. And now if, if you're in a dating relationship, maybe you felt that. If you haven't, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. But, but like, I was willing to do whatever it took to spend as much time possible with Sarah as I could for the amount of money that I made. And I, I just think about this, like, like is, there, is there a commitment in your life, in any area of your life, that's like that? And if it is, it should be Jesus. And I, I put a little side note here because I don't get to talk about dating a ton. We're going through a series that's not always palatable. Ladies and men, if you're dating somebody who is, cannot commit to anything, they are not worth committing to because your marriage will be no different. And I say that because this parable is, is saying, like, if, it's, if you don't know how to commit to something, to fight for it, to be fierce, to literally like, lose sleep at night over it, it's not, they, they don't deem it worth it. They will find something else just as important to them. If they can't commit to accountability, if they can't commit to a job, if they, if the, certainly if they can't commit to what it means to follow Jesus, then there, it's, it, it, is, it is a red flag. And I think about this in following Jesus with, with people who, who want to follow Jesus, and, it, and you see in their area, like, they commit, but they're, like, 60% in. Or, and I just think Jesus is saying, look, the treasure, the pearl is so valuable. He's not making fun of these people for selling everything. He's applauding them. Because they have the greatest treasure on earth. And I think about, you know, I, I was saying, uh, I, I wrote in my notes that, you know, Sarah and I right now, our marriage is harder than it has ever been. And we're struggling through some things. And when we're dated, like, there's this fire and this infatuation, and it's great, and God creates it that way. But, you know, it simmers down, and marriage becomes real. You have a child, you have lack of sleep, you have all these priorities, you have a church plan, you have people to worry about, and marriage becomes really hard. And so there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about like the fight that I had for Sarah when we were dating and the fight that I still I committed before God in our marriage now every day I wake up. And some of you aren't married and some of you maybe never will be married and that's totally okay. I'm just using this because this is the most tangible illustration I have in my life of what it means to commit to something that requires every ounce of me and more humility than I would ever bargain to give away. The treasure that you find, are you hungry for it? Because if you aren't, it's not going to cause that much joy. The most joy that I see in our marriage is when we see our sinner selves coming together and finding a beautiful way to see Jesus moving in our lives, to remove the things that we couldn't remove ourselves, to free us from the things that we were enslaved to, to provide hope and restoration from the world's sin and suckiness in our lives, to see Jesus restore us in that. We would not see that if we gave up. We would miss the beauty of that. I don't even know if Sarah and I would be married if I wasn't just nonsensibly flying out and seeing her for a very short amount of time with very little sleep and money. I think I would have just been like, you know what, you're in Texas, I'm in Tucson. This just isn't going to work. Or, I mean, she probably was thinking some more things. We fight for it. We fight for what we prioritize. You can't say you prioritize Jesus and then neglect half of your life in what it means to be under his rule. The last parable 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea that caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, they pulled it ashore, sat down, and put the good fish in the containers. They threw the bad away. This is a little bit different, and what's going on here is Jesus is saying, hey, like the same things I just said, but once again, he's almost pulling at the parable of the weeds. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, Trigg spoke on the parable of the weeds, and his main idea was that evil will still always exist on this side of earth. Like, we are planted in an area of people where sin, is, sin abounds, right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's among us. And that's not to be scared, but it's to realize that sin is trying to eat us alive. And in the same way, in the Sea of Galilee, this is a fun fact, there were over 20 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. There was only about two or three they couldn't eat because of their law. They couldn't have things. It had to have scales and fins, eels, catfish, those type of things they couldn't eat. Now, it would not make sense to every 30 seconds pull up your net and be like, oop, there's a catfish, throw it back in the water, only for it to then swim back into the net again. So they take this giant dry net, they catch all this fish, they bring it up on shore, and then they handpick and they sort. Bad fish they kill, throw away, because they don't want them back in the lake because it's more bad fish breeding with bad fish. Good fish they store, right? The same idea is with the kingdom. Like I said, it's, you're fully in or you're fully out. And at the end of the day, he's, he's reminding us there is this reality of a decision to be made. There is this reality of a judgment. He's not hiding from it. In fact, after that, he says, in verse 49, he says, it will be this way at the end of the age. There's this time when Jesus will say, hey, time's up. Which kingdom do you want? Your own or mine? Angels will come, will separate the evil from the righteous, then throw them into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he says, verse 51. Now, this is important because this is him asking about this whole last chapter, him sitting on a boat, him teaching all these parables. He says, have you understood all these things? They replied, yes. Have you understood what the kingdom is, what its reality looks like, what it requires of us? That there is no lukewarm follower of Jesus. It is not, it doesn't exist. Because it's counterintuitive to Jesus' kingdom. So once again, I want to summarize the parables, what these parables are about is a joyful, wholehearted commitment to Jesus and his kingdom above all else. Now, I, I want to close with this because one of the favorite questions that I, I love these, I love these parables. They're like some of my favorite because they're just simple, they make sense, and they're a good barometer. You're like, am I willing to give up everything? No, I really like my house. I really like my new truck. Like, you know, it's, it's tangible. But what I love to do when I read these is I like to think about the people who saw these two characters, like, go through this process. Can you imagine? You go home to your family, and you're, like, working 9 to 5, and you're like, hey, guess what? We're selling the house. We're selling the cars. Get rid of the stroller and the playhouse. I, I found this treasure on this land. We need to buy the land. You know, and your family's like, is it that nice of the land? And he's like, no, 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 there's a treasure there. Trust me, it's amazing. It'll change your life. You know, and, and, and you know, his wife's like, oh, I don't know. And his friends are like, bro, you crazy, man. Work your job. Like, that field is not even that good. You know, but he found something because he was seeking it. He was hungry, and it changed his life. And it doesn't matter, all the other stuff, right? Like, he's going to run full force into that. Imagine the pearl merchant who sits down with all of his merchant buddies, and, and he's like, hey, guys, I just want to let you know, like, uh, I'm no longer going to be selling pearls. And they're like, oh, why not? Like, yeah, I'm closing my store. And they're like, well, why? Well, um, I found this one pearl, and I, I, I have to have it, and it, I had to sell everything to get it. And so I only have this one pearl, and I'm not going to sell it. What do you think they think in that moment? What an idiot. This guy who was, like, probably one of the finest... Um, you know, 
pearl experts, is, is retiring because he has found this ultimate treasure that, that, he, that is, has dictated his leverage all of his life for it. So I, I, I know that a lot of times we talk about as a church, like being missional and reaching people in your circles and reaching people in your spheres and loving your neighbor and like being a light, right? Contrast, be a light. He, it doesn't even need to tell you to do that with this because it doesn't, you don't even need to. If you're giving up everything, people are going to notice. If you're more generous than anyone, they know. If you're willing to give up more of your time than ever, if you're willing to encourage and love people and to not play your insecurities, play that game, if you're willing to not slander and gossip others, if you're willing to say, yeah, I'm not really going to partake in that, people are going to notice. You don't have to shove Jesus down their throats. But at the end of the day, are they seeing a kingdom that's like this? Are you like, well, that person's a Christian, but like, eh, they seem pretty normal. They seem like everyone else. Like, I don't know. It seems like a, just a hobby they do, right? These people sold everything. Everyone around them was probably thinking they're crazy. But I bet some people were like, hmm, I kind of want to go see that treasure. If it's that great. Your own hunger will automatically be contagious to other people's hunger. It just will. And, and, we're, and, and, and so the, Jesus reaffirms this in the last verse. He says this in verse 52. This is a very confusing verse. We're going to talk about it really quick. He said to them, therefore, this is at the end. He said, hey, we understand all these parables. And he says, therefore, every expert in the law who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and old. Now, there's a lot of controversy over what this verse means. I'm going to give you the most compelling, simple answer because I don't have enough time. If you want to email me and talk about it later, we can. What he is saying is he is calling the disciples experts in the law. He is calling them these new scribes, Pharisees, being trained for the kingdom of heaven, meaning they have known the old law, they have understood it fulfilled in the new law. Remember, the new law does not cancel the old law. It fulfills the old law. And he says, now that you know, now that you understand the weight, the reality of the kingdom of heaven, and you are, you are believing and living into it, you're stepping into it, go teach it. That's what he's saying. He says, experts in the law have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. He brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And people come and see and they say, wow, look at that. Look at this. Wow, look at these reconcile. That is what Jesus is saying here. And I just think for our own selves, I just have a few questions that I just, I feel like people should be asking of us if they see us truly living out the kingdom. People should be asking, how have you been able to forgive that person who continually wrongs you? How have you been able to spend that much time serving others when it doesn't benefit you or yourself or your influence at all? You aren't taking that promotion because it will affect your soul? You're going to be paid so much more money. How is that possible? You're not going to work overtime. You're going to Sabbath. You're going to take a whole day and not work. You're going to give away how much of your income? You're going to spend how many times a week in prayer, what does that do? The people actually ask that of you. Do they notice it? Do they care? Does it strike them as weird? The people in these parables who sold everything they had had people asking these questions. Are people asking those questions of you? So I want to invite um, Evan up. We're going to close with a time of reflection here. And I just want to ask a few questions that I want you to reflect on. We, we offer this time every Sunday. Uh, it's a time for you to partake in the bread and cup, which is the Lord's Supper, which is uh, a symbol of the sacrifice that Jesus' sacrifice made for us with his body and his blood, the bread and the, 
the juice. And you can take that any time during this time with yourself. Um, for those of you who follow Jesus, we do that as a symbol. The other thing we have is prayer. We have people in the back who would love to pray for you. We have people beside you who, believe it or not, would love to pray for you. There's very few people here that would not want to pray for you. If you anything stirs in your heart or you're like struggling in certain areas, we'd love for you to pray. The third thing is I'm going to leave up, actually, after this slide, some questions that I would love for you guys to reflect on in relation to this, these parables. But all, all I want to leave you with in the main question is, is, am I fully willing to give up all for the kingdom? And I think, uh, you know, my answer sometimes is no. And it puts me to a place on my knees that requires me to truly see the way to Jesus in my life. So we're going to give you a few moments to partake in any of those three, and they're going to put the questions up, and you can reflect on that. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.